Hey everyone, we've got a new sponsor for the show this month, Scrivener, the software that helps organize ideas for writing stories, research papers, or articles. Alex and some of my other writing friends have been using it for years, and I recently started too. It's got a lot of tools to help outline and plan out stories in a much more visually useful and organized way than my usual slipshod method of keeping a bunch of disorganized notes on Google Docs. If you want to try it out, they offer a free 30-day trial, and if you decide to buy it and help support the show, you can use the code RATIONALLY to get 20% off during the month of March. Hope you find it useful. Hello and welcome to Rational Writing. I'm Dave Stoyle. And I'm Alexander Wales. And this is episode 26, Tabletop RPGs and Writing. So, I have a feeling that your answer to this is going to be a little bit longer than mine, but how long have you been playing Tabletop RPGs? Well, the short answer is uh, 17 years. Because we started, me, me and my, some friends when I was dating myself a little bit here, but when I was a, it was the year before high school started. Mm-hmm. So it was 2000. And that's when the 3.0 version of D&D, then just known as 3rd Edition, came out. And we got our Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, and Monster Manual, and we all figured out how to play together. And so I haven't played, I haven't been doing like a session a week or whatever, mm-hmm. every week for my Twits. whole life. Right, right. I've never had a hiatus longer than a few months, though. And been with a lot of different groups, been through a lot of different systems. Third edition, 3-5, fourth, fifth, um, Pathfinder... Call of Cthulhu, uh, Mutants and Masterminds, the Star Wars, Malfoy's the last one. I, I've played quite a bit of Malfoy because I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Instead of rolling dice, you you have a deck of cards, and that's a really cool twist on the premise, I guess. But And then I've, we've done a lot of one-shot s- stuff where you try out a different system. You said Star Wars D22, right? Yes, but I... Oh, an Eclipse phase. You've played that before, right? No, I haven't. Okay, well, it's, it's a, like a transhumanist space thing. Mm-hmm. You get, like, different sleeves for bodies. It's kind of cool. Cool. I, I sort of collect, have a whole bunch of uh, source books for different yeah. systems. Because I, I like leafing through them. They usually have neat ideas and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, you've been playing a lot longer than I have, and I think a lot more extensively than I have. I, I started playing my freshman year of master's degree, which was 2010. And like, I'd been aware of, of tabletop RPGs for a while, obviously. And they were always something that I was interested in, but I just never had a group to play with. So I started playing in a friend's Pathfinder and then World of Darkness group. And fell in love with the World of Darkness setting because I love modern Supernatural. And uh, started running my own game too. But before I started running my own game, I actually took the, the World of Darkness story that I played in and wrote a novel off it. That's the that's It was the inspiration for The Calling, hmm. which I've mentioned before. Right. And it was a really cool experience. I did it during a NaNoWriMo. And... A lot of it changed, obviously, from the game to the book form. A ton of it changed. But it taught me also, I think, a lot about writing in terms of the differences between what makes for a good tabletop RPG and what makes for a good book. Yeah, I, I did that too, the tabletop game to novella in my case. But mm-hmm. an interesting experience. Not sure I'd do it again. Yeah, I would actually encourage anyone who has trouble writing their own novels but, but plays lots of tabletop RPGs that wants to write to do it as a good first step towards it because... I think it helps a lot in 
giving you a framework, a plot, a set of characters, and then from there it's really just pruning what what works best for a novel versus all the different things that make tabletop RPGs so fun. And I think there's a difference in the perspective between being a GM in a game and a writer. Yeah, definitely. Both in terms of like focus and mm-hmm. what skills you you have to bring to the table, I guess. Yeah, how you adapt what you've experienced, really. Yeah. Do you have any ongoing games right now? Yeah, I'm co-GMing a uh, D&D game of, online, and I did a I did a World of Darkness one-shot a few months ago, but it's been a long time since I really ran a full World of Darkness campaign, which I want to do again. So I'm kind of in the in the process of thinking up a Changeling, the Lost One, because it's my favorite setting in the World of Darkness one. All the settings that I've played in most have been D&D, Pathfinder, World of Darkness, New World of Darkness, I should say, and some Fate for Dresden Files. But yeah, New World of Darkness Changeling is, is kind of the thing I'm trying to get going now. Yeah, I'm running a, a heavily homebrewed D&D 5th edition mm-hmm. campaign. I'll probably talk about that a little bit, because that's what's been on my mind lately. Right. So one of the, I guess the first things we should talk about is the major difference between a, a tabletop RPG story and a novel story is that the tabletop RPG story has different branches that it can go down. It's more of a choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah, and it's uh, very much an ensemble-type mm-hmm. thing, uh, and not in the way that you would do ensemble in a novel. Like To some extent, if you have an ensemble, everyone's following their own threads, and it's very difficult if you're writing an ensemble novel, in my experience anyway, to have everyone following the same main plot at once, which I actually find sort of true of DMing as well, mm-hmm. right? You can send the party off on an adventure, but narratively they are still sort of doing their own thing, and that's one of the reasons that parties split up so much, which is difficult to deal with. If You're you're basically the game engine that is running the tabletop game, and it's really difficult to do multi-threading. Yeah, when you're telling the tabletop game story, generally speaking, there's an overall plot that you have in mind, but there are usually lots of subplots and sub and ways different ways to approach that plot. And it's okay in a tabletop RPG to have kind of hanging threads that never really get pulled and followed. Whereas in a novel, you kind of don't want those. They they tend to be seen as distracting, irrelevant. You know, they don't they don't if they don't develop characters or they don't advance the plot, you cut them out which can mean losing a lot of what makes the tabletop RPG game enjoyable and finding ways to adapt the events of the tabletop RPG to a story is is one of the challenges because if you've got a small side quest, one of the early things that just kind of, you know, some of the players want to make some money and gain some experience and it just really has nothing to do with the overall plot, but the characters had some good moments in it and they bonded and that kind of thing, you've kind of got to kind of find a way to get that into a story if you're writing a, a novel based on the game without having it be like, go kill ten bears and bring me their pelts. Yeah. Or whatever the equivalent would be. Yeah, and it one of the things I find challenging about running a game that I think I've gotten fairly good at is trying to tie in those those minor early quests into larger mm-hmm. narrative arc. Like, go go kill this necromancer who's raising skeletons or whatever. That's not a very compelling plot on its own, but then you, you can add, like, little hooks on to the end. Right. Which is how you would do it in, in a novel. You probably wouldn't start with characters who are just, like, being paid for it. You would want to weave in character motivations. So right. your character is going to go kill 
a necromancer, yes, that's a side quest. And yes, it can hook into something larger, but you'd also want to attach something character-based to that to sort of reveal something as a character about them, not just like, hey, he wants gold, right? He'd be doing it to prove something to his father, who's a clergyman, or disproves of him, or mm-hmm. like he's a thief, and he uh, needs to like get some renown and not necessarily clear his name, but bring himself back in good standing or something. Right. And if you're jamming, you're you can you can suggest stuff like that to your players, but they don't always bite on it. And right. a lot of times those things will just get dropped. Those will be one of, if you introduce something for like side quest scenario like that, or in the beginning, you can just say, Hey, like your father disapproves of you or whatever. That's that's one of the things that'll get dropped very fast, unless the player really likes it. It's a collaborative process. The play if the player doesn't doesn't really isn't really interested in it, doesn't really want to push on it, or the GM just has other things to, to worry about and it doesn't follow up on it. It's kind of okay in a tabletop setting for it to just kind of default to a bunch of adventurers. They have their backstories, but why are they here together? Uh, because the plot demands it essentially. Like we all know that we're playing a game together. We know that we're all going to be on this on this adventure together. We'll 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 make up what we need to make up in order to make it so that our characters are okay with with questing together. Whereas in a novel, that's way too contrived. You don't have the luxury of, of putting six uh, different races and classes of person in a in a bar together, and them all just suddenly deciding to go on go on quests together uh, because they happen to all hear about the same necromancer that wants that needs to be killed. And there are better and worse ways to start campaigns, uh, and I would say that meeting the, the tavern meeting quest is the most basic and serviceable one but maybe not necessarily the the most uh, engaging or creative one all the time. But when you're writing it as a novel, that's where you kind of put all the work into to the characters becoming more organic early on. And it helps that you get the characters, a sense of the characters through the game itself. Like if you've played a game with these characters, you learn about the characters through the game, and you can take the stuff that they have later on, aspects of them that, that get revealed later on as the players get comfortable with them and you know, start thinking up more backstory, and you can just bring that into the story earlier on. You can have that be their motivation, part of their motivation from the beginning, even if it wasn't when they started playing the game. Yeah, and that's I think that's true of novels as well, is that you don't, yes. as much as you might try to map things out, you don't always know the character fully until you get, like, mm-hmm. 20,000, 30,000 words through, maybe even more. Yeah, characters can surprise you until the very end. Yeah, that's... One of the reasons I, preparation is great. It's also one of the reasons editing is great. Cause if yeah. if things about the character aren't working or they get revealed to you in a tabletop game, you just drop them. You know, you have like a twin brother who's <laughs> who like killed your parents or something, and that's your backstory that you bring on the page in the first session, and then you just sort of forget about it. And it's not important for character motivation that just gets dropped. You can do that in editing a novel. You just are like, okay, that's clearly foreshadowing but i'm not going to use it because it's boring or it's contrived or it just isn't working with the the plot that it was set up right i really i really do like as a side note starting people off by meeting in the tavern it's just so it's just so classic the current game that i'm running we just like it was just one character finding his way to a table it was the only empty seat in the house he sits down with some other people and then this guy comes up and is like, hey, uh, I bet you're all wondering why I gathered you here. And like no one has ever like seen or heard of this guy before. And that's, that was how we started. Right. It's become a such a common trope that I think it, it also has encouraged a lot of subversions. 
which is which is always fun. Yeah, you can only do the subversion so much. Yeah, right. Because eventually you're just like subverting this thing that people expect to be subverted, mm-hmm. and everyone gets annoyed by the subversion. But I I really like meeting in a tavern, <laughs> especially because it's it's often so hard when people don't coordinate on character building. Right. And it's just like oh, like I'm this goblin ranger and and you're like this cleric of the afterlife and we're all somehow just going to come together and uh yeah it's easier with, with some parties and settings than others to create a more coordinated backstory for everyone yeah that also it's also kind of a beginning that's more genre specific obviously you're not going to have a modern supernatural story where uh everyone's meeting at the bar i mean you can like you you can you can do it but like the bartender I've just got this vampire problem, man. Like, can you can you guys at the bar, like, you all want to help fix my vampire problem? And I'll pay you some money if you fix it for me. Like, you can do it. Uh, but it, it, generally speaking, lends itself more to the the f- classic fantasy. Sci-fi, I guess, can also work. The Moss Eisley Cantina sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Every time someone says that I can't do something, I immediately want to start writing that story. <laughs> <laughs> Or someone said that's a bad idea. Right, right. I, have, I actually have a like half finished, like fifty thousand word so far novel. That's someone on Facebook was like, "I'm pretty sure you can't do like robots, vampires, and wizards all in one book." And uh-huh. I was like, "Watch me!" And then I like like fifty thousand word, words later, and I'm like, "Why? Why did this compulsion? Why did I do this?" <laughs> that's actually how the. Um... Codex Alira series uh, by Jim Butcher was written. Uh, someone challenged him to write, I think it was Pokemon meets the Lost Roman Legion from history. Oh. Yeah. And uh, what he what he ended up writing, I think, is a really unique and, and kind of cool world and magic system and all that stuff. And it's less Pokemon than it is really just like elements and ge- elementalness in general. I don't know if you ever played uh, Golden Sun for Game Boy Advanced. No. It's basically just like, you know, elemental magic and also the elements manifest themselves as, as little creatures that can act independently too. But yeah, it's always a cool thing when, when a seemingly bizarre or unworkable premise just kind of lights a fire in your mind. Yeah. It works really well for tabletop campaigns, again, because like you've got so much freedom to adapt as needed what's going on in the in the story. In a novel, what, what you're doing is going to be a little bit more challenged by having a kind of constrained narrative and plot which is also again like makes it really fun if you get it if you can get it right but it makes it harder too yeah uh less so in serials because yes. i mean most tabletop games not all because you can do like one shots where you just you play for one night and then you wrap up the story then so a lot of my favorite games i've ever played of any tabletop are have just been a single session and that's it mm-hmm. but most tabletop sessions are done serially. They're done over it's it's week to week. Sometimes you do like one session a week, and that that is one of the reasons that you can get away with dropping things yeah. because when people come back after a week, they will only remember specific things, and there's usually a group note taker, sometimes two, although I've found that fairly rare, and they keep all the lore right mm-hmm. and if they don't write something down or they don't remember it or they remember it wrong, that just gets put into the story right web serials which both of us write they're they're different because you have more people who are looking for those inconsistencies or waiting on threads and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. to some extent you can still gauge what's what people are interested in and to some extent drop things that aren't working right there's a lot of little 
things that are like great advice for tabletop GMs and storytellers that are not work don't they don't really work so well for writing a, a novel. Uh, one of the great things that tabletop RPGs I think does well is the aspect of not railroading your characters, like the 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 principle of not railroading your characters. Uh, I think is really important for tabletop RPGs and it kind of doesn't make as much sense to people if you're, if you're approaching it from a storytelling perspective from a, a novel or a serial perspective because you think to yourself like you know the whole point is that you've got a plot and you're going from one part of the plot to another so why wouldn't you you know why wouldn't you railroad quote-unquote why wouldn't you just push the push the story along yeah well railroading railroading doesn't look like railroading mm-hmm. when you're doing it or when you're planning it Right. So I've I've planned out stories and then they have, I guess, hopped the rails within the first session. <laughs> I had I had a campaign where it was this whole militia had been sent out to take out a necromancer or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. I always like starting with necromancers because skeletons and zombies are like easy if you're level one. Yeah. They went in and they're like there was a, a cave collapse from a trap that like separated them from the group and most of their like people died and they had to go do it alone to like go through this cave system and when they got to the necromancer they got him on his knees and they're like hey surrender and i was like uh okay i guess he would surrender Mm -hmm. and they're like okay you're working for us now and i was like what that is not that's not what we were doing here uh and then the whole campaign basically stemmed from them making that decision in the first session Mm -hmm. that's one of the things i love about tabletop games is that they can take you in those pleasant unexpected directions right while also ruining a bunch of work that you did (laughs) yeah so yeah what railroading looks like in a novel and what railroading looks like in a a tabletop rpg actually is is pretty similar i wrote an article called one problem one solution versus the many solutions many problems yeah and i compared these two book series one of them is terry goodkind's sort of truth series and the other one is jim butcher's judgment files which obviously i've mentioned before that i love a lot and one of the reasons I love it a lot is because it shows such a stark contrast to what many books do with their with their plots. I don't think this is an accident. Jim Butcher is a avid tabletop gamer. He's actually joked before that he's the only person in the world that can't enjoy the Dresden Files tabletop RPG <laughs> because if he's a player, he has way too much authorial fiat to have any other, anyone else GM for him. And if he is the GM, it's just too much like work. Yeah. But he writes his plots of a lot of his novels, especially the later ones in the series, where there are a lot of different solutions to the problem the hero has. And they all have a lot of complications that would arise from them. And the hero basically is choosing between... There are no perfect answers. They're all kind of just like, we're doing the best we can with what we've got. We can It can go any in any direction, really. And maybe we sacrifice some of our principles for some more power to help us get over this quest. Maybe we'll make temporary f- friends with this, these bad guys that we know at some point we're going to have to kill. Uh, but they'll be stronger because we've, we've helped them. And it makes, it makes it all feel a lot more organic and realistic and just overall compelling. The classic way of storytelling is you just give a problem. There's the one solution to the problem that you've got to solve, that you've got to do to solve it. And if the GM or the writer wants to continue the story after that, they will make consequences happen from that problem that the characters just didn't know. They couldn't have known were going to happen. They arise afterward, and then they've got a hook for the next book or the hook for the next adventure. And it just keeps going from there over and over again. And that's a very subtle form of railroading. I think most people wouldn't recognize it as railroading in the moment, but 
I think the attitude you go into when you're making a tabletop RPG or a story can help shape your story to be one kind or the other, where the characters are not so restricted in, in the information that they have that their options don't really feel like options when you look at them as a whole. They're just kind of doing what they're told to do because it's the only thing they know they can do. And I think it's better always to give them the more information forewarning of, of potential consequences so that the choices that they have to make between the different solutions is more meaningful. Yeah. It is one of those things where you you never want to fully resolve anything mm-hmm. unless you're like getting to the end of a campaign, which is always hard to do. It's hard to get to the end of a campaign. But yeah, I, I, I always do the problems with solutions, mostly because I find that fun and I think it's more engaging if you can end every session on some kind of thread that's mm-hmm. still remaining to be pulled. But definitely early on, and maybe even, I think maybe midway into my career as a GM, I was doing the here's the problem, here's the solution, and they're just going to go for it. When they when they went and asked the, this necromancer to surrender, I had not considered that. Mm-hmm. I, I had thought, okay, they're going to go, they're going to kill the necromancer, and then come back to the duke, and then the campaign proper will start, because they'll like have quests and right. stuff like that. But I had sort of come to this awareness of that, that good jamming involves improv to some extent there's this improv concept of yes and where you take the thing that's being given to you and you you add on to it and you you complicate it and stuff like that and so i just i ditched the campaign that i had planned because they had found a different route and (laughs) if you are railroading it's it's very easy to just like shift things back yeah because you, yeah. you know the necromancer dies, and then they go back to the duke. Right. And they say, surrender. And he's like, no, I'll never surrender. And he stabs himself in the throat, which I think happens quite frequently. Like, people are, are willing to die much more often in tabletop games, especially because it absolves the heroes of having to do dirty work, right. right? Bad guys very rarely just drop their swords and say, all right, you've bested me. Take me to the authorities <laughs> or whatever. I am now yours to do with as you will. Yeah. So it's one of those things, it's very easy to railroad, and it's very easy to not see that you're railroading. Mm-hmm. So uh, part of it is that that learning improv. I've, I've actually never taken an improv class, but I've read a lot about improv. And there's a lot of that involved in GMing, much more than in, like prose novel writing. Mm-hmm. One of the tricks that I do, because not railroading is great, but you also, if you're doing it week to week, you have to prepare yeah. stuff. Right, you have to like lay out a dungeon or uh, a keep or something, and there need to be, you know, monsters to fight usually or people to talk to, and there's only so much that you have time to prepare ahead if you're doing it week to week. I usually do four or five hour sessions, and if I'm preparing for like three or four different ways that the session can go, it just eats up. It eats up too much time, and then I'm wasting like. 75% of the work I've done. So uh, you can do Schrodinger's Railroad, where you give the players a choice between going to the woods or going to Castle Keep or something like that. And then no matter what they choose, you use elements of the stuff that you've yeah. prepared. You can find the same the same trap, uh, slightly altered, could be found uh, in a dungeon or in a forest. The same yeah. ter- like villain... With slightly different motives, or uh, you know, things like that, can be can be found in different settings. Yeah, and I think that's a very useful skill. Players don't usually recognize it that it's happening. Mm-hmm. The wrong way to do it is 
you say, okay, you can go to uh, Malfagor's Keep, or you can go to the Enchanted Forest. And then they're like, oh, we'll go to the Enchanted Forest. And then as soon as they enter, the enchantment of the forest sends them to Malfagor's Keep. That's the bad way to do it. But it's good as far as conserving what you have planned. I think it's a good skill for novel writing, mm -hmm. because there will come points where you're like, okay, this, as I've written it, doesn't necessarily make with make sense with character motivations or, or plans or right. plot it out. And then you need to patch it. And part of knowing how to patch things is knowing how to get things back on track without making it seem like there is a track. Yeah. Pa again, paring down, right? Because a lot of writing is writing too much and then editing down. Yeah. And this is less the case for serial authors writing online because we don't have an editor and we just kind of keep things moving uh, week to week, month to month, as best we can, without the time to decide, like, is this really going to be as necessary for the overall plot? I think some serial authors are, are better at keeping things tight. The Animorphs the Reckoning story is one of the, like, one of the, the really well-done fan fictions that I've seen in terms of keeping everything plot-relevant and, and moving the plot forward chapter to chapter really well. I really like your, your Shadows in the Limelight kind of like i started reading it expecting it to be this long winding adventure and it just it's kept to its plot very well you know yeah i felt some people might disagree with me on this but i felt that uh metropolitan man i did that pretty well because it yes i had the whole plot the whole progression of events written out before i started and part of that is that i have this hatred for filler uh -huh. it's it's very easy to write filler it's very easy to just write a scene where two people are talking to each other or like doing something T together that they would do naturally mm -hmm. and it's sort of fun to write and then you step back and you're like what did this accomplish mm -hmm. and then worse than that you will have comments on the chapter or whatever and people will be like this plot is moving too slow mm -hmm. and i i hate that because i am the kind of person who would leave those comments if i i don't know i don't think they're necessarily helpful i don't, I don't know how much you've read of pokemon but I'm, I'm actually really curious to know to what extent the filler has annoyed you in it a little bit. Yeah. When I was reading Worm, I absolutely loved just about every chapter. Like, I'm sure there was a few chapters that I can't really remember because I didn't like them much. Uh, but I liked pretty much every interlude, every chapter that went into backstory, relationships, you know, some aspect of the world that wasn't integral to the main plot. Um, and then, like, my stepbrother was reading it, and he got to the uh, Traveler's backstory when they finally get you know, some some explanation of who they are and where they come from and all this stuff. And he just stopped reading when there was that whole chapter uh, about the their League of Legends slash World of Warcraft, whatever kind of MOBA game that they were playing and how they knew yeah. each other and things. And he just stopped, he stopped reading and he was like, yeah, it was a really good story, but just I don't, you know, I stopped caring about these people. And I don't, I'm like, so just, you know, skip it if you care that little. But he's like, nah. And I, that's just to me, like, that's, to me, that's a, that's a mental space that I don't inhabit. So I know that this is a difference between between readers for, like, how much filler they enjoy and how much they don't. Yeah. It depends on your definition of filler. Right. So uh, yeah, I was going to say, because to, to me, like, filler really is that reset the status quo to me. That's filler, right? That we all just learned all this stuff and all these things happened, but no one no one changed. None of, nothing plot relevant happened. Nothing important was done. Whereas for me, good filler wouldn't, wouldn't even be considered filler um, if it is character developing. Because character development for me is, in some respects, more important than the plot. I definitely enjoy a lot of 
novels that the plot is, you know, subpar or boilerplate or whatever, but the characters are really well done. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of, like, Korean dramas lately, for whatever reason. And one of the things I find very interesting about them is that there's a very little reset to the status quo, mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, a like a Western a sitcom that's focused around a relationship. Uh-huh those reset all the time. It's like, this episode did not matter. It, it maybe revealed a little bit about the characters, but it didn't change their relationship in a meaningful way. Right. And I don't really understand where that, why that distinction comes about. It might be the focus on syndication. In... Yeah. I think it's almost exclusively a artifact of the medium. It makes it just so much easier for writers of a show to pump out content. Yeah. Well, especially because uh, most American TV shows, you have a writing team yeah. and... The writing in all the episodes in parallel. So this is a, a thing of characters that the players as characters are very different from characters as characters. When your characters essentially have a other person, I like to talk a lot about how characters can surprise me and take on a life of their own and kind of sit on my shoulder and criticize what I'm doing with them or come up with new ideas for what they do instead of what I thought they'd do. And that is like obviously exponentially the case when you are in a tabletop RPG, because all the players have their own motivations and ideas for what the characters are going to do, and the most frustrating part probably is when their agency doesn't allow you as the GM to continue the story, but also can kind of kill the story dead in many cases. Sometimes literally. (laughs) There was a World of Darkness game that I was playing. The setting was basically small town America, some big vampire comes to town secretly and begins converting the population little by little and using like half human agents to encroach on the town further and all the player characters who are essentially like a lawyer a doctor an ex-politician in the town just kind of you know ragtag group of humans trying to figure out what's going on and stop it at one point they've they've been fighting the vampires for a few days now and at one point they are getting the players are getting frustrated because they keep losing their, their fights and just kind of barely making it out. And at one point, they're fighting like three different vampires, and they're losing pretty badly. And as the GM slash writer, what I'm immediately paying attention to is, why are they not using stakes and crossbows and all these things that have been established to be effective against the vampires? As players, they're using... One one of them's using a shotgun. One of them's using like a katana that they just kind of found. There's a whole bunch of different play styles and character motivations and things like that that are that are going into what, how they're playing and at one point one of the characters the players turns to me and says do i have my uh, crossbow still well from when we all ran out of that forest and as far as i can remember he didn't pick his crossbow up but i was like fuck it sure yeah you've got your crossbow you you and he's like okay good i pull out my shotgun and i shoot the vampire <laughs> and i'm like god damn it man <laughs> like they almost all died again and we can't end the session and they start complaining about how the, the vampire fights are too hard. And I kind of, I lost it. I was like, guys, the vampires are too hard because you're supposed to be using stakes and, and crossbows and stuff and holy water to fight them. None of you are doing that. And they all kind of look at you like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that would be easier to do. But, like, if I had been writing that story as a novel based off of what happened in the campaign, I would be, I would say, a very poor writer. Definitely not a rational writer to have my characters so constantly forget what would make what would be effective ways to fight these vampires yeah and yet as a gm that's the kind of thing you have to deal with yeah and it's kind of poor form to point out solutions to problems right my current campaign they're gonna go down into this mine and they're talking about 
how to get out of the mine in case things went bad, as they often do. And they have these like druid twigs that left that let them travel between trees. And they're like, oh, we'll just use one of the twigs. And then there's this long discussion about like how there are not any trees like that are going to be in this mine, right? Because it's a mine. Mm-hmm. And how they might bring a tree down. And I'm like the whole time thinking like one of you has the staff that <laughs> can make trees. But if you're a GM, you don't want to say that. Right. Right. You, you want people to de- have that moment of discovery on their own, so long as it's information that they have written down somewhere, I guess, mm-hmm. or could figure out on their own. But at the same time, like the characters should know that, right? Mm-hmm. They should be intimately familiar with the fact that their staff can make trees. I don't know. It's it's one of those hard things, but I generally will err on the side of just rolling with it, yeah. I guess. And that's the thing that, again, if you're doing a tabletop campaign, it's part of the setting. It's expected... It's part of the fun. As frustrating as it can be as the GM sometimes, or even the player, it's part of the fun of the setting. If you're writing a story based off of a uh, tabletop game, taking those moments of character forgetfulness and making them more believable so that you don't frustrate your readers who are reading the story about these characters that don't remember the tools they have to solve their problems, especially as a rational writer, especially as a writer who's trying to make their characters not... um, make such simple mistakes you, you got to find other reasons why they would not be able to solve these problems as easily and this goes for pretty much anything that the player might make their character do that doesn't necessarily make sense for a character to do without a player behind them whether it's choosing an action because of some meta reason or um having a kind of uncharacteristic moment just for the fun of it or you know to it's the work of adapting a, a tabletop rpg into a story is making those fit than just leaving it as is which is i think one of the reasons that it's it's can can be much more challenging than people might first give it credit for if they're going to make mistakes which is totally okay you know it's okay for characters to make mistakes and and not be super superhuman super intelligent geniuses all the time just at least find find better excuses than oh i hadn't i haven't played in a week and i forgot that this was in my inventory yeah that's that's one of the big things of because you're 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 running this serial and and people just forget. Yeah. And the the other problem is that you're in a game setting and depending on system it can incentivize certain sorts of solutions, right. notably combat over other solutions. So a lot of times people will just uh, skip diplomacy entirely and just be like, hey, let's be murder hobos. Right. I've I've run games like that if that's what the players want. Mm-hmm. Uh, most, I, I think there's some readers who like that too. There was a, I can't remember who wrote it. I think it might have been John Ringo. He wrote this, he, he, he writes like fantasy and I think some military thrillers or something like that. But he wrote this, this series for himself, not intending to release it at all, about this like Navy SEAL who's just like oversexed and he just kills so many people and they're like always bad guys or whatever. But he... I guess showed this to someone and they were like, oh my God, you have to publish it. So he wrote, he has this uh, really pulpy series. I think it's John Ringo of just like over the top power fantasy of just indiscriminate killing. Yeah. And some people go for that. Yeah. I sometimes think that my own stuff could use more, more on the action side or uh-huh. more on the like simple, clear goals. Adventure. Yeah. I don't enjoy writing that though. So. Yeah. I was going to say, there's always going to be that, that pull and push between writing fun scenes and making the the action serve the the plot yeah another point worth going over is exposition since generally speaking like tabletop rpgs are a good way to practice getting that exposition out through character interactions 
rather than just dumping it on them. As little as you want to bore your readers with exposition, you want to bore your players with exposition even less. So yeah. you kind of find ways to get the exposition and information out there in more organic ways, with, through the characters and the setting, through books that they find, or whatever it ends up being. And that's a, that's a good practice for, as a writer, ways to communicate information to the, to the characters, to the readers, without dumping exposition on them. Yeah, what D&D does, which I think is somewhat helpful for novel writing, is the first time you encounter something, you can roll a knowledge skill mm -hmm. to see what you know about it or whether you know anything. And it's good to have little blurbs about like what an aboleth is. Right, right. Right. And that's the best place to insert it, right? In novel writing it's kind of it's kind of mixed. Ideally you let the reader know or hint at what an aboleth is before a character encounters it. Right. But I think it's sometimes fine to include a a little bit of that exposition like as soon as you see one, or you yes. see like tracks or something, uh, especially if that's done character to character, which in D&D &D it usually is. Right. Unless sometimes you will have someone roll knowledge and then they learn what an aboleth is and then they don't tell the party. <laughs> which I've had happen before. Right. So, like I, fin I finished giving my spiel and then and then they were like, okay, I don't tell the party. It's like, why? <laughs> which again, <laughs> as a writer, this is, your, this is your challenge now. Like, why is this character keeping vital information from his, his her party? Yeah. Tabletop RPGs are just a great launchpad for writing stories if you are if you are less experienced with it or you feel uncertain about how your plotting is going to go and it's, it's great practice if you do play tabletop rpgs especially if you gm them and you want to write novels picking an uh, a campaign that is more or less complete doing a few attempts at writing maybe a short story or even just a scene or two of it things like that it gives you a lot of a lot of structure it gives you these characters already that you can adapt as needed it gives you plot it gives you a setting, and the setting is also a great source of uh, information for writing overall for any kind of any kind of tabletop game. The the source books, right? Yeah, I love source books. I kind of want to write a source book, but I don't <laughs> think I have the right inspiration. I yeah, I actually really wanted to back in back when I first started playing uh, tabletop RPGs. I, I really wanted to do a Percy Jackson and the Olympians tabletop RPG. Like I wanted to create it, and it was just it was like the amount of effort and and time and and energy necessary to like even just get the rights to to attempt it was daunting but you can use a lot of the things that you find in, in different source books for different things i have a few source books from the games i've played but i bought pretty much every single changeling the lost source book i could find for all the different like expansions and the different like extra knowledge books and lore books and things like that because i love the fey and I love modern supernatural, and I just knew that if I ever wanted to write a uh, modern supernatural that that had to do with the Fae even a little bit, I would find them invaluable. And now that I actually am writing something like that, I definitely plan on dusting them off and giving a look through them again. Yeah, I, I usually for campaigns I end up with a sprawling wiki of stuff that's been established about the world, mm -hmm. or alternately a really long like campaign bible that just pulls from a bunch of sources, and is longer than anyone would ever want to read. Even myself. Yeah. I've, I have my current campaign is like we're in our eighth session, I think, after two months of play, and my I can't even use the main campaign Bible <laughs> anymore. It, it, yeah, it's it's like thirty pages long in Google, and then I have I have to had to make a make a separate document that has like all the stuff that I actually care about. Right. 
And then the main one is just like a bunch of ideas and plot hooks and facts about other corners of the world, should they ever be visited and stuff like that. Um, it's a great exercise in paring down to the essentials. Right. Uh, especially if you do world building, which I do a lot of mostly because I find it fun. I used to be very active on the R world building mm -hmm. subreddit just because you can rapid fire toss ideas out and people ask like a question and then you can just answer it with a new thing about your world. But when you're novel writing, you don't want to do that. You, you don't want to expose that much of the world to the reader because the reader won't tend to care unless it's directly relevant to the characters or the plot. Right. It is good to know, though, just in the back of your mind, how, how oh, your yeah, world no, it, works. It, yeah. it is great to have all that information. And it's if you're uh, doing the tabletop to novel conversion, it's great to have a sort of test run of the world. Yeah. If you want to do like more inspired by then a transcription of events, mm -hmm. you, you can figure out what works and what doesn't because you're going to have people butting up against the boundaries of the story. Right. And the boundaries of the mechanics, too. Yeah. When you're adapting, you know, D&D spellcasting to your novel, for example, you can you can totally keep the 5th level spells and 7th level spells if you want to, but probably going to want to find a different way of representing that in, in the narrative. Yeah. Although it does have a sort of neat, like, how many bullets are left in the gun feel mm -hmm. to me. Yes, yes, it does. It does. It, mechanically, it's it's perfectly fine as a system. Just the the narrative flow of designing the world even if you weren't necessarily stealing from dnd does wizards of the coast care if i actually don't know if they if people publish dnd books uh they do well so there are a lot of dnd books that are uh, like official franchise. yeah yeah i think they do care okay. i don't know how ruthlessly they pursue it but i know eagle jarl had to adapt his yeah to your emperor over to goblins and ghouls i think was mm -hmm. his we should also mention before we wrap up eagle jarl and valorian and I'm going to forget, I think Augsphere and some others have done a quest called uh, Marked for Death. It's a very interesting kind of mix between writing a story and running a tabletop RPG. It's something called a quest. Yeah. We will probably talk about those in a separate episode because they have many of the themes that we talked about this in this one, if we ever do. And probably have Eagle Jarl or Valorian or someone uh, come on as a guest to talk about. Yeah. I've always wanted to write a quest. Yeah. Ever since I knew that was a thing. It's like, oh, so it's like exactly tabletop it's not exactly tabletop but it's very very close it's the collaborative storytelling but written form which is great yeah well i mean i've, I've done play by post yeah which is very i mean that's very similar i've also done diceless play by post where you don't roll any dice for combat encounters you just make things up narratively which is not tabletop gaming at all but it's that's that's much more on the um collaborative writing side Collaborative writing, yeah. yeah. I've done a few one-on-one -on -one stories where I was essentially the GM with another player and um, just kind of, we were telling a story together. Like, they, they were the main character in the story and I would roll dice to, to help de determine what would happen based on their decisions and it's a lot of fun. So yeah, we'll talk more about tabletops and storytelling and quests specifically in another episode at some point, I'm sure. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I'm going to put all the... I'm going to put a lot of stuff in the show notes, probably uh, links to articles that I've written or some tabletop RPG source books that Alexander and I would think would be useful to anyone thinking of writing stories. Yeah, there will also be a link to the wiki for one of my campaign settings as well. Sounds good. Magus Europa. All right. Thanks for listening, guys.